welcome to episode four of the New Holland podcast. Hello and welcome. If you've just downloaded this podcast and tuned in expecting to find Nigel Honeyman speaking, then I'm truly sorry. My name is David Redman. I'm the high horsepower tractor product specialist. Today, the tables have been turned just slightly. Nigel is allowing me the steering wheel. For those not familiar, the steering wheel is the large round object in front of you. Most don't seem to touch it today. We rely on satellites to guide us across the field. However, ask Nigel about GPS steering, and he will say it used to be lining up something that didn't begin with a letter C across the other side of the field, i.e. cows, cars, or clouds, because they tend to move if you're trying to plow in a straight line. With that in mind, if we take a look at agriculture today, much has progressed. Tractors, which can run at speeds of 50 kph, not even dreamed about 40 years ago. Tractors, which can control machinery via isobus screens in the cabs. Combine harvesters with 40 and 45 foot headers, large grain tanks for massive carrying capacity. I could go on, the list is endless. And it's combine harvesters I would like to talk about today. More specifically, residue management. Over the years, we have had more to move away from straw burning and incorporate the straw into the soil. If you think back, uh, the, the the straw burning as a, as a child, maybe you saw the big plumes of smoke. Obviously, it's all been stopped and now the government wants us to incorporate the straw. So joining me is New Holland's Combine Harvester Product Specialist, Mr. Nigel Honeyman. Nigel, firstly, thank you for allowing me uh, the controls here today. But I was just interested really to hear your views on the management of straw. I kind of mentioned just earlier uh, straw burning and how this how, how kind of has this really impacted the combine harvester as we've moved you know forward and progressed with straw management. Well, I, I can always I, I'm old enough to remember straw burning the first time around back in the 80s. Uh, I can remember my old farm manager screaming at me that there was nothing like a good burn. Uh, usually as the wind had changed direction after we'd done a, a carefully considered bit of back burning to uh, to have him hurdling over swaths of straw like uh, like he was going for the Olympics. Um, we've had to change the combines a little bit. Back in those days, we used to have little like uh, propellers that were fitted uh, under the straw hoods. And what this used to do is they used to, to spread the straw evenly over the field. So you got a better burn of the stubble underneath it. Now, obviously, this is all gone. And most of what we do now obviously is concentrate on uh, on chopping the straw uh, where where it's appropriate and then incorporating this rather than using uh, using fire as the agent okay you mentioned chopping the straw and I, I guess in my mind that when I think of a combine the majority of the uh, the straw is is chopped is the combine designed is it still flexible enough to to lay down straw softs for baling Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the key things with a combine harvester. We we tend to be very parochial in our view of what we do. We tend to see what is farmed around us, and we think that that's uh, Europe-wide, that, that is the case. Um, certainly, even within the United Kingdom, if you go up into Scotland, chopping the straw still is a hanging offence, I think, under local bylaws, uh, because they will use it all. They'll use it all for, for, for livestock, and they will use the straw for 
for, for bedding down carrots and bits and pieces like that. So the ability to um, to bale up the straw and for the combine just to, to, to lay a swath of straw is, is, is very important. And it's becoming more so important now as there is competition for the straw. The straw is a a very important revenue stream for many, many farmers, not just for livestock and and, and carrots or vegetable uses, uh, but also in an industrial sense. We're seeing straw being used, um, particularly in the in the uh, northeast Midlands, for uh, for power stations, uh, for for being used as the uh, as a renewable fuel for power stations. Yeah, okay, it's interesting. Uh, when when you kind of look at straw, I mean, uh, and, and generally harvest uh, as an overall, I mean, the harvest window is is getting smaller and smaller, and and to me, the the person buying the combine is is looking for that kind of increased efficiency of the combine. And and I mentioned earlier header sizes, uh, you know, they seem to be on the ever on the increase. Uh, I remember quite a while ago when 20, 20 foot was was a big header, and now we're at 40, 45 foot. Uh, kind Kind of let's say being the nearly the average size header so with with the header size growing uh, does that affect a straw spread at the back of the combine as well well when you start looking at uh, wider headers it, it causes two problems um one for whether you're laying the straw swath down and secondly also for, for for spreading it if you were if you were to chop it when you start looking at uh, laying a swath of straw out the back of the combine a 40-foot swath of straw is one almighty volume of straw. Um, and what we're starting to see at the minute is, is a demand for um, a, a swath splitter to go on the back of the combine so that you get two smaller swaths. One thing we're seeing at the moment, because of the agronomy, um, certainly of wheat has changed over the years, is we're seeing the crop very much alive when it comes to harvest. So it's very green. So you can't just run the baler in straight behind the combine. It does need a day to, and in, in, in some conditions when I've seen prob- probably more than a week to dry out and for the green straw to, to finally die off. And this is after the grain itself is fit and ready to go. Now, when you start looking at these um, wider headers in regards of uh, uh, of chopping, uh, chopping the straw residue, um, obviously that gives us an issue. One, we've got to spread the full width of the header. So 40 foot, 45 foot, we've got to be able to blast the, the chopped straw that wide. But when we start talking about residue management, we must always remember the fact that we've got chaff to consider coming off the cleaning shoe. Uh, now, chaff is very, very difficult to throw. Um, to get that to the full width of a 40-foot, 45-foot header is problematic. Now, historically, we've used uh, an impact-based spreading system, very similar to what you'd find with a um, with a fertilizer spreader. So you'd have a vein that's spinning. That would hit the material. That would send it out flying. But chaff is so light, there's no momentum there. It's very difficult to spread it over the over the entire distance. So the one thing that we've done with our larger machines now is we have introduced an air-based distribution system for the chaff. Uh, So what we will do, we will have two blasts of air coming out the side of the combine, and then we will use that as the transport agent to blow the chaff out to the sides. It's the only way really that we've found of being able to effectively and reliably uh, spread the chaff at the back of the combine. Okay, interesting. And you said about chopping earlier, and something uh, I have kind of heard a bit about um, when it comes to, let's say, a tractor following up behind the combine with a driller or a cultivator, and that's um, chop quality. So, can you explain to me how New Holland or how chop quality is measured? How how is how is that measured? 
Well, it all goes back to the design process. When we start um, looking at what we call PV or product validation, um, when we start testing the choppers, and what we do is we have a uh, a series of trays, very much like a like a fertilizer um, test tray. Uh, but these are these are metal. They're mounted on a magnetic beam that crosses the combine. And what we can do is as we're driving the combine up the field, we can press a button, all the trays drop. And then after the chopper has been over it, then we can measure it. Now, what we're trying to measure when we're looking at how effective a, uh, a straw chopper is, is we're looking at the um, the length of chop. So we're looking at whether we've got a, a consistent length of chop or whether it's all higgledy-piggledy and short and long and everything in between. And the other one that we're looking at there is the distribution because distribution is absolutely key. You talk about following up behind the combine with a, with a cultivator or something similar to that. What we don't want to be doing when we're when we're following the uh, following the combine is we don't want to be looking after problems that the combine has caused. So lumps lumps of chopped straw of chaff. We don't want this. We want a nice, even, consistent spread across the full width of the uh, of the combine. And that's really where we start uh, trying to get the, um, the an even and consistent uh, performance out of the chopper. Okay, so with this in mind, then the straw chopper itself does that need to be at full speed and maximum chop for the whole of the season? Uh, yes and no. Um, certain certain crop residues um, perform differently when you get to the uh, get to the straw chopper. If you take uh, rape helm, for example, coming off uh, oilseed rape, that is relatively easy to chop. It's quite a um, a substantial piece of material going through the chopper. You don't need too much counter knife or anything on that one to uh, to get a consistent chop through that. However, on the other side of the equation, particularly some of the spring crops, spring barley, spring wheat, and unfortunately for the Scots, they will chop spring barley straw uh, in the south of England. The way that they chop, they don't chop nice and cleanly. Uh, they can almost be like uh, a little bit fluffy as it comes out the back of the chopper. Um, so you do have to adjust the chopper uh, depending on, on the material that's going through it. Um, adjusting the chopper really is a it has a very great influence on the um, not just the, the, the performance of the combine, uh, because it, it the chopper does take uh, quite a considerable amount of power, particularly with the wider headers. When you're putting 40 foot of straw into a chopper, there's there's quite a lot of material there to be uh, to be processed. Typically with a something like a, a CR 1090 or something similar to that that will be running a 40 foot, uh, a 40 foot header, the residue management system will take in approximately 110 to 115 horsepower to run. So it's quite considerable. So if you're doing more work than you need to, um, you obviously have an impact then on the overall performance of the combine because the, the horsepower that should be available for output is being put to work to, uh, uh, to grind up unnecessarily the, uh, the straw that's coming through the back of the machine. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So just to kind of finish up then, Nigel, what, um, probably the $6 million question, and uh, I suppose what people would be interested to hear, what future developments do you uh, do you foresee kind of coming with the uh, with the residue management system in the in the kind of that, that back end of the combine? Five or so years ago, we had a Europe-wide consultation with farmers. You, you may know it, we call it the voice of the customer. So what we do, uh, is we will bring customers in and we will ask questions. And one of these particular ones was regarding residue management. We wanted to know what farmers were doing, how they were going to be drilling, how they were going to be cultivating uh, over 10 years, because any 
modifications to the to the back end of a combine that we do um it, it it's not an overnight thing we have to design it validate it get it into the field field test it um, before it ever comes to market now one of the things that came out of that consultation was that most people didn't actually know how they were going to be drilling their drilling their crops in in years to come um, but one thing was clear that whatever they did choose whether it was going to be min till zero till or whether they ever went back to the plow they did not want the combine to limit their choices or to have any undue influence over how they could uh, perform any any operation. Most people, you know, they, they were going down the route of move less soil. And slowly and surely, I think we're starting to see that now. So in terms of what we need to do with 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 residue management at the back of the uh, at the back of any combine. Firstly, we must be aware that there is this move for ever wider headers. So whatever we do, we must be able to um, consistently spread over the entire width of the header. Now, that can cause problems, uh, particularly, for example, we get this issue in Germany on the plains of Germany, uh, where uh, side winds can affect the, um, the the spreading performance of a combine. So I think what we'll look, what we'll see in years to come is some form of automatic compensation uh, to uh, ensure that we get even consistent spreads over the full width of a combine, and we're going to be seeing uh, spreading widths in excess of the, the the 40 to 45 feet that uh, that we can currently manage. Um, the other issue that we're going to start to see, and, and, and it keeps cropping up in conversations, is some technology that's come around through places, uh, particularly in Australia, which is a seed destroyer or a seed mill that fits on the back of the combine to destroy anything that's coming off the back of the cleaning chute. And what it will do, using technology that I think really started life in mining, it will render any seeds that are coming over the back of the combine uh, unviable so that they can't germinate. One thing that we've seen in, in the UK over the last few years has been the emergence of black grass as a real problem. People will see 60% reductions in crop um, as a result of black grass. I always get this, this question about these seed destroyers and um, if I would put one on the back of the combine, will it help with my black grass problem? Well, Ray Harrington uh, was the gentleman in Australia who was quite central to the development of the seed destroyer. Um, and I had the opportunity to speak to Ray when he came over um, at the cereal show a couple of years ago. And the big issue that he saw with the black grass and, and, the, and the use of the, the seed destroyer in addressing it was the fact that you've got to get the seed in and through the combine before it can be of any use whatsoever. So if you've got black grass that is shedding onto the ground before the combine ever gets near it, then whatever you put on the combine is not going to be not going to have any effect whatsoever. Uh, in trying to address it. Ray was talking about various chemical methods for stunting the growth of the black grass so that you, so that it would coincide um, with the harvesting of the crop so you can actually get it into the machine and use it. The one thing with the black grass problem is that I don't think that it is a silver bullet. The effective treatment of black grass is going to be a multi-pronged attack. It may well be that we can do something on, uh, about it on the combine, uh, but I think also through cultivations and chemicals is probably where we're going to uh, going to see it. But it is a it's it's an ever developing um, field uh, residue management, um, and it is quite central to the role that uh, um, that people are that people have within agriculture now. Nigel, um, thanks for the interesting insight into residue management. It will certainly assist us when we we are following through with our tractors for cultivations and uh, and drillings, and. 
on that note, I'm going to hand the controls back to you once again. However, this seat has been as comfortable as the T7 Blue Power seat, and I think I might be back. David, you are more than welcome. Many thanks for talking this afternoon. Well, Mark, we spoke last time uh, regarding the hydrogen tractor and the fact that we were pushing the envelope uh, with that machine of, of what was technologically possible. Uh, now, we are, I understand, absolutely on the cusp of launching the production level machines with the with the gas tractor. Can you explain to me where the gas tractor differs from a diesel tractor? Uh, yeah, of course. The Well, I mean, the, the fundamental is that the gas engine is a is like a petrol engine it's a lower compression engine it has spark plugs but for for any tractor enthusiasts this is not unusual i mean gas engines have been around not in full production you know but fiat had a gas engine um and some other manufacturers have run gas certainly during the war gas was available as it was low pressure gas and it was a bit rough but it could still run a vehicle to do a task um obviously we've had we've refined it a, a lot since then but the actual use of um, natural gas within a internal combustion engine is is not new um but it's the way that we go about doing it with the um the stoichiometric combustion uh, and the way that fpt have developed this for the on road that really brings it to or brought it to our attention for us to start doing our tests, bringing it to the agricultural um, world, shall we say. Now and again, people can get a little bit confused because there appears to be two different types of gas. There's LNG, uh, the the liquefied natural gas, and there is CNG, compressed natural gas. Can you just explain which our our version runs on and and what the difference is between the two of them? The, the, The liquid, the liquefied natural gas, is the way you store it on the vehicle so that that gas is methane gas still they're they're all running methane but you store um, gas as a liquid at below minus 163 degrees and then the compressed gas is compressed to ambient but you are able to store it on on our vehicle at 200 bar which allows you to obviously get more more gas on on the vehicle um, under pressure so those are the two. There are more, Nigel. There are there are other gases. Um, LPG, which you'll run your barbecue on. Um, people have played with that. In fact, we had a prototype that went over to the US that was running on LPG. Um, but that's a that that was a bit of a difficult um, gas to work with because it was propane and butane. And depending on where you are in the world, the ratio of propane or butane. Um, you know, in, in auto gas, shall we say, um, fluctuates. Whereas on your barbecue, you specify propane or you specify um, butane. And no, so for our our tractor, we're using um, natural gas, and the source of natural gas is um, fossil gas, of course, and it can also be biogas. Um, so we can get the gas from different sources and store it in different ways. It was a great idea and a great initiative, but all of um, LPG is fossil derived. We dropped the LPG in favour of the of the CNG, um, and that will be what goes to market um, this year. Are both the um, 
the lorry, the, the road transport, and also the agricultural side, are we both using the same type of gas now, or uh, for for getting the density of fuel on board a, on, on board a lorry, are they going down a different route? On The on-road guys have both technologies. So when you're talking about a daily van, um, a compact van with which is um, for light duties around town, which is where the gas um, daily um, sits, uh, that's using CNG. Then you move to the um, Eurocargo, which will do longer routes. Um, they're still running um, CNG, um, and they also use a similar engine to the one we have in the tractor and where we got our engine um, for the prototypes. But it's when you get to the big... Um, what the guys would call in in the on the on road heavy haulage the the tractor units that they use there you have a choice you have the choice of CNG but the the mileage is limited or you have LNG and and it was really the breakthrough of LNG which allowed those big hauliers to do the the longer haulage routes in fact um, you'll be familiar Nigel a few years ago they took a truck loaded at 30 tons from Basildon to Madrid. Um, on one tank of LNG and I believe they covered 1700 kilometers on on a tank so the technology has really improved since they started out and and the see and, and that's where the LNG really comes into play when you're doing a long haul run if if I put the environmental hat on on my head at the moment we're, we're still talking about burning a fuel a, hyd- a hydrocarbon what emissions benefits do we get from moving over to gas as opposed to staying with diesel yes nigel so with regards to our tractor the emissions compared to a stage five diesel now we covered how strict the stage five emissions were in a previous discussion so comparing our methane tractor to the current legislation we will be 75 percent less with carbon monoxide we will have reduced the um, hydrocarbons um, down by 90 percent i mean particulate matter is almost non-existent now Um, we have reduced that by 98 99 percent which is phenomenal considering where we that we'd already brought it down a huge amount and the nox is reduced by 62 percent that's that's from the straight tailpipe so forgetting the where the gas came from originally. Um, if if you were to go with where you know where we started, then the and you start really processing and understanding how um, biofuels affect the system, then the numbers really do get um, it, well. They're exceptional. Um, so if we take diesel as sort of a hundred percent, you can you can be you can have savings of 180%. So you can save all that diesel and then you can save the emission of the the waste. So say cattle waste from a dairy that sits in a, um, sits, you know, awaiting spreading on a field, that's sitting there um, uh, emitting um, methane and emitting CO2. If you could capture all that gas and put that back in the tractor, which is, what we do with um, bio um, CNG, then you have like a double uh, result because you're capturing gas that would have emitted into the atmosphere and then you're not using a fossil fuel to power your vehicle. And that part of the cycle is the most exciting 
because for electric vehicles they can claim a zero emission because of a wind turbine or or solar but we're actively looking to capture the gas that would have been emitted and then not use a fossil fuel in the engine and, and use that gas to power our vehicle okay i mean one the proof of the pudding is obviously going to be in how this how this engine performs now now i can go back to my youth and if someone described a tractor as having a lorry engine in it it was never meant as a compliment so when we start looking at the at, at the gas tractor is is the operator going to realize um, in, in terms of its performance that it's actually running on anything different as far as the power and the torque is concerned it's there and thereabouts identical what you have to remember on this tractor is whereas with a car you would have say a, a 1.6 diesel and the equivalent power um, car running on on petrol would be say a one liter or a 1.1 1.2 so the engine size is vastly different the gas tractor or the methane power tractor is has the same engine it's a 6.75 so um, for all the shall we say the the diesel heads the petrol heads we've effectively got in this tractor a 6.75 um, straight six petrol engine sounds nice <laughs> yeah exactly um, when you put it like that things do change and yeah the the power and the torque um, there are there and thereabouts the same um, the only thing that really the customer would find different is that physics is a barrier when it comes to the storage of of the fuel so we have a limited autonomy range compared to a diesel um, but for all the haulage the back to base the hedge cutting um, the you know the municipal work um, the loader work all of those activities where the farmer today may fill up once or twice a week the gas tractor is is ideal is absolutely ideal um and then if you are producing your own um, fuel especially if you're producing it from waste some of the tariffs that are available to support that activity and effectively the uh to compensate the the owner or the operator for the challenges are are very good i mean the uk have got a very good system in place to encourage people to use um, fuel derived from from waste. I mean, as I understand at the moment, the, the the production level of the gas tractor has the option of putting a range extender on the front that looks very similar to a um, to a ballast block. How how, yeah. how far how far how far does that increase the range? Well, interesting you mentioned that because the the tanks on the front are actually bigger than the tanks underneath the vehicle because underneath the vehicle we're having to um, put um, shall we say torpedo tanks around the current infrastructure of the vehicle whereas out the front we have we can use much bigger tanks again from from Iveco um, that we can utilize that space in a much better way so when a range extender is taken um, you actually get it's not additional um, fuel you're actually carrying more at the front than you are underneath the vehicle 
Mark, a, a lot of farmers now, because of their customer base, they the, their customers are demanding knowledge of the environmental footprint that many of the farms are putting out at the minute in terms of the carbon, in terms of uh, gases that they're producing. Um, so this obviously ticks quite a few of those boxes. So for those farms that are looking at this technology and saying, right, I'm in, I, 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 I could do with this. What other considerations, what other infrastructure do they need to put in place to be able to uh, take advantage of the gas tractor technology? So we split our customers up into a few different categories. Um, you've got, obviously, a lot of the municipalities, they're the obvious ones. They they have voters, they have um, immediate task to reduce um, their carbon footprint, and they are mainly based in the suburbs um, of, and therefore access to the national grid of gas is relatively easy for most of them. Certainly on the continent it's it's easier again because access to a public fuel station running or with CNG available is far more available than it is here in the in the UK. So for somebody who wants to run a vehicle a truck or a tractor, um, they can um, install a compressor um, connecting up to the national grid and they compress the gas that you and I cook on um, and and that can fuel a vehicle. So the simplest one is you have a compressor, you plug the tractor in overnight and you fill it up, you go off and do your task and then bring it back to base, you plug it in not dissimilar to the way an electric car works. Um, the next upgrade from that is to add some additional tanks, and this is where you get a fast fill. So this would enable a guy to slow fill overnight, go off and do a task, come back at lunchtime, and then um, refuel again fast. And I mean, when I talk about fast, it, it's way quicker than diesel. So we're talking uh, from an empty fill it's five minutes um, and that uses high pressure storage tanks at 250 or 300 bar which can deliver the, the gas as a pressure balance system so that those are the two and that works for the municipalities and obviously any farmers who do who are lucky enough to have access to the national grid they can they can do the same when we talk about bio biogas um, it's not available to everyone so um, the farms with anaerobic digesters on, um, a number of them are already cleaning their gas and injecting into the grid. Um, those guys are not di uh, uh, have no difference to those that we just mentioned who can compress the gas from the grid because the gas going from their anaerobic digesters are at the same quality. Things get a bit trickier when we talk about the anaerobic digesters that are producing electricity because the gas that they are producing is only around 50 or 60 percent methane and that gas is not um, clean enough for uh, to run in our engine you know we need a minimum of 80 83 85 percent um, where the grid is running around 98 percent so we do have a, a large tolerance of our engine to accept gas that isn't at the grid quality um, but that needs to be considered. This is where our confidence is as a, as a company that we have a lot of customers from a, a, a wide range of 
um, business sectors and from around the world that are asking about this technology um, for the future. I've managed to wrest my chair back from David. And on next week's episode of the New Holland Podcast, we will be talking to John Downs from the Precision Solutions and Telematics team, looking at data and farm data and whether we are looking at this from completely the wrong direction. We will also be concluding our talk with Mark Howell when we start looking at the energy independent farm. And we ask the question, can a farm ever be independent of the fuel merchant? Having just caught the BBC weather, I note that there is a yellow snow warning across vast swathes of the United Kingdom at the minute. I learned the perils of yellow snow as a young child, but let us just consider this as public service broadcasting at its very best. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, please stay safe. (laughs) 